Welcome to... Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Cracked Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. It's time to get back to our roots here on this show. Longtime listeners of the GSP know this podcast is where I like to have my 30,000-foot view conversations about what's currently going on in the pro tennis world. We certainly have that sort of discussion for all of you listeners today. And look, the 2023 Grand Slams, They may officially be in the books, but we're still going to see movement in the rankings down the home stretch of this season. You look back to last year where players like Holger Runa, Marketa Vondrusova, Felix Ogier-Aliassime, Alicia Parks, they made big leaps down the home stretch of the season, positioned themselves beautifully for 2024. Who might those players be down the home stretch of this season? That's a topic that is near and dear to my heart, maybe at the front of my brain right now as I look at the home stretch of this season. And answering that question is something we want to try to do over the next two days here on this podcast. Here on today's show, I am joined by our dear friend, Monday Match Analysis host, Tennis Channel contributor Gil Gross, to play a game of stock up, stock down, or stock hold, looking at the current ATP singles rankings and trying to determine which players are overranked, underranked, or perhaps sitting just right as we head towards the home stretch of the season and towards the early portions of 2024. Now look, there might be some obvious players that come to the front of your mind when you think about this exercise. We tried to avoid those obvious cases. We tried to get into the players that, again, who had confounding years? Who do we have questions remaining about as we look towards this home stretch of the season? Just a sneak preview, guys, like Casper Ruud, Francis Tiafo, Sebastian Baez, Alex Diemenauer, and many others. They all come up over the course of this conversation. It's always a blast when we have Gil Gross on this show, but again, this is a podcast I am particularly proud of for what it's worth. Tomorrow on this podcast, David Kane will be joining joining me for the WTA equivalent conversation. We got a jam-packed week here on this show. Of course, we're covering the daily results over on the Mini Break podcast. You know we're rocking and rolling on all fronts here at Crack Rackets as we head towards the home stretch of another exciting season. With all of that said, let's get to it. Here's our conversation. Stock up, stock down, stock hold ATP edition with the one and only Gil Gross. Joining us on the podcast once again today is a renowned food critic whose dulcet tones blessed all of us U.S. Open radio listeners. Of course, if you don't know him for that, you may also know him as host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show, founder of the Gil Gross YouTube channel, and contributor extraordinaire at both Tennis Channel and here at Crack Rackets. It's our dear friend, Gil Gross. Gil, hey, great shot. Welcome back to the show. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm great, Grusky. What do you want to start with? Uh, the, the Chinese food scene and flushing? Because it is impressive. <laughs> yes. Like, is it bad? Because, look, I followed the tweets. Was it the pizza 
that was the ultimate. You know, again, a lot of things blend. I remember there was a tweet of this is the best food at the U.S. Open. What was that declaration? That that was the lobster roll. Lobster roll. That's what it was. Yeah. And there's two of them. There's one at Krabby Shack. There's one at Stay Fly. I'm not going to say anything negative about anything, but I will say the one I prefer, which is Stay Fly. Uh, extra butter sauce? Well, you know, that's the thing. I I appreciate- <laughs> Because there's a thing. Good, good. Of course there's a thing. I appreciate a, a hot, a warm, I should say, a warm lobster roll with butter. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's great. I'm not- But- this one is chilled and it's the cool version. It's got mayo, it's got celery, it's seasoned with tarragon. I, and I get it. Like some people are just like, that's not a lobster roll. But you see, I prefer to uh, keep an open mind and appreciate things in, in all kinds of different styles. So I like, I am all in on both kinds of lobster rolls. And frankly, in the US Open heat, Okay, when you just spent mm. three hours on grandstand, it's kind of nice to get something cold. So three things off of that. One, and yes, three points off of that lobster roll rant. <laughs> I've got three for you here, Gil. Um, thing number one, you should add seasoned with tarragon to your X profile because that's how <laughs> I would describe you just beautifully. Thing number two, that you turned that into like a serious comment on why this particular food item is actually beneficial with the sun bearing down on you. That's just, that's excellent podcasting by you, my friend. Thing number three, and I promised a 45 minute or less podcast, Gil said he was skeptical. This would be why. Thing number three, most importantly, I'm a seafood guy. Lobster's not for me. I just, I think it's the most overrated of the seafood combinations. Like any shrimp, any fish, I'm in on. You know that. You selected when we went and last got food, we went and got Indian. And I'm usually a chicken or a beef guy with Indian. You recommended the fish. It was stellar, like stellar. So again, I defer to you on most food items. Lobster's just overrated to me. Like I, I, It's too expensive for the lack of return. Well, I was going to say, like, what if it were cheap? If you don't want to drop the bag on lobster, <laughs> it's, I get it's it. Fair. Yeah, fair. I mean, I just again, I like... I prefer a good salmon or like a well-prepared salmon or any sort of white fish I'm in on. Lobster, like, it's just so basic to me. It's like but everything tastes good with butter. Yeah, okay. We're not going to get this uh, on track yet because— stock. You know what? Stock down. Stock down. This is how we'll transition. <laughs> stock down on the lobster roll. Uh, yes, it's fair. But anyways, seasoned with tarragon, Gilgross is joining us once again for today's edition of Stock Up, Stock Down, Stock Hold. And as I explained in our introduction, which at this point was likely 10 minutes ago, uh, here's the purpose of today's exercise. We want to focus on the players who— are at interesting points, whether it be things they have or have not accomplished in this 2023 season, where they are now sitting in the rankings, given all the additional context. Are you stock up, stock down, stock hold with these players? And again, the metric we are using for that stock is their current ranking. I went with the ATP Top 100 rankings, not the live rankings. ATP Top 100 here, Monday, September 18th is when we're recording. I presented Gil a list of four. 14 names. He whittled it down to 10. I then added one of his names back with an executive veto. I did subtract uh, a name subsequently from the list, but we have 10 names here. Some of them will be quicker than others. 
look, we tried to exclude the obvious stock ups. We tried to exclude the obvious stock downs minus one addition. Gil's giving me a look to say you didn't exclude all of them. But I want to have the, the interesting conversations. Again, players that may not be winning all of the headlines right now, but players who are certainly on the radar as we look not only at the home stretch of this season, but heading into 2024 as well. With that, I ordered these by most to least interesting, at least in my mind. Let's start with number nine, Kasparud, because I do think Kasparud has had one of the more fascinating seasons here in 2023. The headline result, of course, the fact that he made another slam final. And look, right now, the list of active players with three slam finals or more, it's a very limited list. Kasparud finds himself on it. He hasn't even turned 25 years old. 30 and 18, though overall on this season. He wins the title in Estoril, finals in Bostad and Roland Garros, semifinals the Rome Masters. That's your headlines. That's it. And again, did he win a title? Yes, he did. Did he make a slam final? Yes, he did. Was he relevant at a Masters event? Yes, he was. And with the season he's had, he's 10th in the points race, about 400 points behind Fritz Zverev for that eight spot. He's in the mix with what we have left on the calendar. That said, again, certainly not an inspiring season, given what we saw from him last year across the board, given what we've seen from him at the Masters more broadly on hard courts over the past two and a half seasons. With that context, I ask you, Gil Gross, Kasparu, number nine, as we look moving forward, stock up, stock down, are you holding? Yeah, so what's the time period, first of all, in terms of, how how long term is this? Is it is it next year? When do you know what I mean? Do you know what or is it? So of over course we're into the rules here early. Westoff, leave this in because it's tough to say. It's certainly not as we head towards the end of the year because two months is nothing. Yeah, I would say more broadly as we head towards twenty twenty four and the reset sure. of the calendar with all these hardcore events coming up. Where are you with Casper? I like that. Okay, uh, I'm holding. Right now, okay. I'm holding where he's at, uh, at at number nine in the world, and, and we're trying to look at this, you know, very kind of from a ranking standpoint. Mm-hmm. Right now, based on how he's performed this year, he's overranked, and I would say this about any player who has the year that Kasparud had or has had, because the the points on offer at majors are disproportionately large, which kind of aligns with how much weight we put into the majors. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but as you and I look to evaluate seasons and evaluate players, let's be honest, a guy who takes advantage of his draw, makes a major final, doesn't do much else for the rest of the year. The points from that major final is going to make that player overranked. And I will tell, I I guess the best way for me to fortify this argument is ELO ratings, right? Jeff Sackman's ELO ratings, they do not care what tournament you are playing. A major is the same as a 250. It's just a match and a match and a match. Root is 13th right now. Just to quickly elaborate on that again, tennis abstract ELO, the, the easiest way to explain it, ELO ratings met measure who you play and what the score is against them. The rankings measure where you get those wins and what round they happen. That's the differentiator. Yeah. Carry on, Gil. Well, that's all. He's Root is 13th right now. Yeah. And I think that 
paints a, a nice portrait of the, what his year has been like as a whole. That said, based on what we saw in 2022, and I, I still really like his assets. I love his forehand. I think his serve is a little underrated. He moves great. His backhand has gotten better. It used to be a, a huge liability. Now I think it's, I don't know, an average two-hander, which is, again, an improvement. I, I, I look at his game, and I, I still feel like he should be a mainstay in the top 10. But he hasn't played like it this year. So that's where I strike that middle ground. He's nine in the world right now. I hold right there. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair argument. I would lean hold. It's not up because he wasn't better at anything in 2023 than he was in 2022. And, you know, even if he got three wins on grass courts this year, you've been like, all right, there are signs of life from him as a grass court player. Nope. He's like, you know what? Made the final of the French Open. I'm folding this one in. He was very open at the beginning of the year. He played too much last offseason, and he just wasn't rested coming into the season. It feels like he's never been fully fit, even though he did make that final at the French Open pretty miserable result on hard courts. But to your point, I don't think he got worse as a server. I don't think his backhand is holding short. I don't think there's some sort of newfound scouting report of pound that backhand corner and you're just going to be rewarded immensely to beat Casper Ruud. That said, like coming out of this year, it's a pot shot, but it's our podcast. So, you know, you and I are going to bring up this player immediately. Andre Rublev's been better than Casper Ruud this season. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, Tsitsipas has been equal, if not better. Runa has been more consistent other than the post-Wimbledon stretch, but it's not like Casper really did anything after the French Open. You look at what he's done, what? Uh, second round Wimbledon, finals Bostad, quarters Hamburg, lost second round Canada, first round Cincy, second round U.S. Open. Nine in the world is right. Like, again, you make a slam final, you're in the top 10 conversation but that's it. You're on the fringes of the conversation. He hasn't been a definitive top eight guy. Stockhold. Yeah, and he's he's getting pushed around by offensive players. That's what's happening. He's putting too many balls in the middle of the court. He is not holding his ground on the baseline. He's pushed back really easily. He's losing a lot of these matches, and you look at it, and it's not like, oh, Rude made a bunch of unforced errors. Rude made a bunch of mistakes, missed a lot. No. He just, he runs into a guy like Zhang Zhizhen at the U.S. Open, who's got big power, serves well. You put the ball in the middle of the court, let this guy set his feet and attack a short ball, and he's he's crushing the ball. So I just think Casper's relying way too much on his defense right now, and I don't, I don't like his defense as much as maybe I could, especially on the backhand side where he tends to just slice the ball. Uh, he doesn't really turn points around once he gets on defense. So it's it's not the same attacking with the forehand kind of mind the court position hug the baseline at times Kasparud that it needs to be and and that's the problem that I see from from a tennis standpoint but you're right he's totally it feels like he's really bungled the scheduling this year he tried to take an off season in February he that didn't work because he had no momentum through March he looked completely rusty and just kind of out of it until the end of clay court season. And then he throws in the towel, as you mentioned, for the grass court season. And then he seems unprepared for the North American hard courts. Like he needs to find a way to not go in and out and in and out as much because once you're out, it's hard to be back in. Yeah. The other big number I would point to record against top 20 opponents the last three years, 10 and 11 in 2021. 
it's pretty good. Like again, yeah. making a lot of quarterfinals at the Masters, you're playing the best players at just about every event you play. If you get 20 top 20 matches, last year 14 and nine. Obviously, that's very good. This year, two and four. Like I know he played Zverev at Roland Garros when Zverev was outside the top 20 and destroyed him, and that should count, and it doesn't. But even if you want to count that three and four. Just hasn't played that many significant matches. And I think that speaks to the season he's had, which again, it's been so, you you mentioned it there, start and stop. That's been the case for Casper. Need the fluidity of 21, 22. That said, he salvaged a top 10 season by making that slam final. So stock hold. Well, he's not he's not a lock though, right? Like, let's sure. look at the race in no, terms of. He's not a, he's a lock at all right now. Yeah, he's 10th right now. And. He's got a 530-point lead on Zverev right now in terms of 9-10 in the rankings. About 1,000 points between he and Tiafo. He's probably going to stay top 10 to end the year, but it might just be in that 10 spot. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. But, I mean, that's a disappointment to not make the year-end sure. championships this year. At his age, right, you want to be getting better every year, if not at least staying the same. Uh, so to have kind of a downturn after a year where you were one match away from becoming world number one is, is a disappointment. And by the way, before the year, are you pivoting? Is, is this a stock down pivot? No, because he's nine in the world. Okay, I'm just saying it's disappointing. It's it's a pretty. I predicted him to finish the year five in the world, which was down a little bit from from what did he enter the year three at or three? four? Yeah, yeah, he was like three that. or four. So I said, okay, he's going to go down a little bit. Let's say five. I got to give it up to my my YouTube commenters because uh, a lot of them said, Rude, that's too high, and they were correct. Yeah, two slam finals. It's just really hard to duplicate unless you're Djokovic or Alcaraz, and that's a discussion maybe for a different time. All right, stock hold for you for Rude. Yep. <sighs> you know what? I'm going to say down. Stock down for Casper. I thought he was flirting with Tier 1 territory. He's just not. It's just I'm, you can't say that coming out of this season, and so I'm gonna say stock down. He's he's a tier two guy for me right now in the mix, but lacking that elite trait to take him maybe over the top. All right, let's go to the next guy. Francis Tiafo was next on my list. Tiafo right now number eleven in the world. Now it was a very disappointing Davis Cup for Francis Tiafo, but you know, big picture, does that really matter? Outside of that weekend, he's 37 and 15 overall on the year. He wins the title in Houston, semis Indian Wells, quarters US Open. You know, I think overall on the year you look, Francis has made seven different quarterfinals across the board. Now a lot of that has been at the 250 level, but you look for Francis, that 37-17 and 17 overall record is the highest win percentage of his season. It's the third consecutive year of growth. He's a top 10 guy by hold percentage, 86% overall this season. He's top 25 in break percentage, career high, 23.2%. Does feel like the forehand return. You just can't pick on it the way that you used to be able to. It's not always just a floating slice return. He can come over the top of it so quickly. Yes, the loss to Shelton was disappointing in the context of how that match played out. But again, if I told you before the season, Francis makes another slam quarterfinal, which he did at the U.S. Open, I think that'd be considered a success. Third round at the other three as well, which means at the very least, he's somewhat holding seed, getting into that mix versus seed on seed battle. Stock up, stock down, stock hold with Francis Tiafo coming out of 2023 right now. Well... I'm between sell and and hold, honestly. Uh, 
I kind of wanted to see more this year as a whole, building on the U.S. Open semifinal. I think where he's ran into problems is the mindset, the mental aspect of being the top 10 guy who's expected to win. We saw it in that Shelton quarterfinal. He didn't come out with energy, which was really surprising to see. Francis at the U.S. Open, that's kind of almost what you what you think of. The first thing you think of Francis at the U.S. Open is, is he's going to come out and, and own the place and just kind of mentally be very engaged, engaged and locked in and fired up. And he just kind of had this flatlining performance, which was striking because, first of all, all the energy was on the other side of the net. It was on Shelton's side. But it's a it's an adjustment for him going from big foe on the come up. I'm on the rise. I'm on the rise. I'm on the rise. And then I just think once he kind of arrived as a top player and yes, I, I know he wants more. He said he wants more, but I think he's had a lot of trouble making that adjustment as, oh, I'm the favorite. Oh, I'm supposed to win this major quarterfinal. Have you seen that? Well, the numbers certainly have. And I forgot to mention the title in Stuttgart from him this season, which again on the grass courts, very impressive. Here's the funny thing for Francis. Against opponents ranked outside the top 50 this year, Tiafo's 27-5. and He's beaten all those players who, again, don't have a weapon to hurt him or can't match up with his physicality. He's 10-12 and against the top 50 this season. That's not as good as it should be. Two and mm-hmm. four against top twenty opponents, zero and two against the top ten. Again, those opportunities just haven't really been there. You know, Francis plays a lot of tight matches. It's a lot of seven fives, a lot of seven six sets. And for what it's worth, you look for him this season: twenty and fourteen overall in breakers. Thirty four breakers has to be up there in terms of total on the year. Eleven is hot. Like. Again, right now, Francis Tiafo is 11 in the world. You look for him in the points race. I think he's 13th. What does yep. he do to maximize beyond that? Like, again, you look for him this season, two titles, a slam quarterfinal, third round or better at all four majors. Isn't but that again, the, like, that's the season for Francis. This is like, this is what you're always hoping for. Are, are you saying, I, I don't know, though. I just don't know, I, like, what's the version of this that's higher than this sort of year? Like, this was a pretty darn good year. It was. I think Francis kind of wanted to contend for these 1,000s and these majors a little bit more than he has. Again, just after the U.S. Open semi, such a good run, and it was, okay, is this a different Francis Tiafo who's who's serving bigger, who's who has great fitness, who's able to recover match to match, who's able to focus for three hours without having the ups and downs and the dips and the matches, and now we can see what makes him such a special athlete with great hands, with a, a pretty awesome backhand with some great traits, a forehand that can be really heavy. It's like, are we going to see this materialize into a player who contends for big titles all the time? And the answer to that has pretty much been no. It's another guy, even when you look at his ranking, 11 in the world, that is a little bit inflated based on winning a couple of titles. And, you know, the rankings points, again, once you get to semis and finals, when you can win those matches, that's where you see massive rewards from a rankings point standpoint at the end of these tournaments. Uh, But sometimes, like in the case of Houston, that wasn't really like if we could wait that you and I, Grusk, we wouldn't give him 250 points for that. I don't think that was quite worth that if we were to kind of weigh 
how impressive was that run, right? But obviously the ranking system doesn't do that. Elo does, as we've discussed, he's 15th in Elo. I don't normally lean so hard on, on Elo in these conversations, but I think when it can confirm what we're kind of feeling, then it, it becomes extremely valuable. Yeah, I mean, here's the difference. You know, a guy like Taylor Fritz has 13 quarterfinals. I bet eight of those are at 250s, something like that. Tiafo seven quarterfinals this year, which again is a really good number. Two of them coming at big events, U.S. Open, Indian Wells, where he makes quarter semis respectively. Mm-hmm. Is this, I mean, again, like to ask for more. From Francis Tiafo, because I do think it's worth entertaining. What's the buy Tiafo argument that his serve is now clearly a top ten serve, and that that recipe for him to be able to just again consistently put that sort of scoreboard pressure? Then to your point, now he gets to get into his bag of tricks, play the slices, move forward a little bit more aggressively, more than anything else, just continue to disrupt your rhythm at his own pace. He does that about as well as you can ask for at this point, and I just I, you know again. A 23.2% break percentage, how well he's been returning serve this season. Is there another level he can get to as a returner? Because the backhand's been locked in. I don't know how much more you can ask for from the forehand. I I just, for a guy who's always had all these weapons, all these physical traits, he has maximized a lot of them to his credit. And again, 11 in the world. That's, there are only 10 players in the world better than him right now by the rankings. I think the best case you can ask for is hold. I agree. He probably ends next year like 16 in the world, and that feels about right. Yep, yep, I agree. Hey, he has started to take his career very seriously. Yes. He's put in – he's worked unbelievably hard. He has a terrific coach in Wayne Ferreira. He's in the best shape possible. That's where you see a guy unlock their potential and do what they're capable of doing. So I do think we've seen that with Francis for the most part. I will say – oh, sorry. Go ahead. I I just hope that he can recapture some of the the competitive juices that I think sometimes he had when he felt, I'm underlooked. I'm underrespected. They don't know what's coming. Like the the kind of foe on the up mindset, I do hope that he can recapture that – in the future, even though he has proven to everybody that he is a top 10 level player at times. Francis Tiafo's played 63 tour level matches on clay. How many wins does he have, Gil? 63? Yeah. Uh, 20. Well, actually, he's d- done really well in Estoril. That just came to my mind. Uh, so I think he's about 500. I would say 33 wins. 29 and 34. 46% win percentage. That's too low. That does not compete. So the argument for Stockhold is he has never put together a good clay court season. And I know he won Houston this year, but wins what? I think four wins there. So elsewhere, he got four total wins, beats Echeverry, Altmaier, Krajinovic, Karatsev. Three set losses uh, to, or a three set loss to Musetti, four sets to Zverev. That backhand ain't built for clay. That's the thing. But the slices, his ability, here's the thing. On the clay, he has that much more time to get around, snap his forehand, and that forehand is built for clay. And that's where with his speed, with his creativity, the physicality he can introduce, why can't he have a 10-win clay season? Like, that to me makes no sense. 
I don't know. I mean, he he like he takes a ton of time away on the return. He likes to stand up, kind of rush his opponents. That's, that's his best play off the return. Also, the the forehand defense in rally, and I agree with yeah. you that the return is the technique on the forehand return has really been cleaned up, and that weakness has mostly been patched. But still, when he's on the run on his forehand, he can definitely have some issues. Uh, making that extra ball in play, kind of making those digs out of the forehand corner. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, I promised 45, so we're going to move on to our next one. This will be our quickest. I think it's the most obvious stock buy in all of the ATP rankings right now. It's Arthur Fee, who's currently sitting at 44 in the live rankings, but Fee, 19 years old, doesn't turn 20 till next June. Obviously, the massive season making, the uh, winning the title, excuse me, in Lyon, beats Rude on his way to the semis in Hamburg, beats Griegsborn, a really fun five-set match at the U.S. Open. Obviously, 44, his career high right now. You look in the ATP rankings. Here are your top 100 teenagers. Arthur Fee, Luca Van Asha. That's the list of top 100 teenagers. And, you know, it is interesting because Jack Draper, who's been injured, is currently 104 in the rankings. Maybe just from a pure value-added standpoint, you take him as the surest thing to fly up the rankings as he's healthy moving forward. But, man, when you watch Arthur Fee play... The serve, the physicality, the forehand, the how steady he is on the backhand wing, his willingness to move forward. I think pretty darn good skills in the outer third of the court when he's forced to counterpunch as well, Gil. I just I like every part of Arthur Fee's game. I think it's gonna translate to all three surfaces, particularly, yes, I know the forehand backswing is big, but he makes up for it with speed and creativity, so I think he'll be fine on the grass. I like Again, it's been about a decade since there's been a French men's tennis prospect who you can look at and say, no, 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 that guy has top 10 skills. Arthur Fee belongs on that list. Yeah, and three years ago, it looked really dire. Three yeah. years ago, you were looking at French men's tennis as, you know, it was Umber, Bear, uh, Umber, Rinder, Kanesh, and Halise. And you're like, ugh. Right, and throw in Bonzi. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was like wow, who who is next? Because Manorino is getting up there, and Sanga just retired, and Simone just retired. Yeah, Fees is is an obvious guy who should jump twenty ranking spots minimum mm-hmm. by end of next year. He passes that very fundamental test for me that that I look for in just a what is your potential, right? My my two basic things were are how fast do you move. How hard do you hit the ball? That's kind of your foundation here. And we can talk about the other stuff that requires good coaching. And well, I think how big technique. are you? How, I mean, not to Well, be I don't rude. care. I don't yeah. care if you're well, big. Well, of course you don't care. Um, but you should care because, like, again. <laughs> Why should I, I care? Because I sometimes care. tall people are better at serving, Gil. It's just that simple. When you're 6'4", <laughs> it's easier to hit the serve. Because Sebi Baez is very fast. He hits the ball very hard. Because he can only hit his serve so hard because of how tall he is, that thing, I just think it belongs in that same conversation. All right, look, I think when you're a tall guy who moves really fast. Life is easier. Yeah, no, that definitely, some fireworks spark in your head like, okay, what what can this guy do? Because you're starting at a really big advantage if you can move well when you're tall. If you're tall and you don't move well, whatever, right? Sure, like me. Um, Exactly. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, Feast is six one. 
But look, the guy's such a man already. Oh now, my here's, God. Here's I'm what I will so say. happy you said that. I could not agree more. <laughs> yeah. Athletically, he's just, he's not a 19 year old. Now yeah. that part of that comes with upside. Part of that has a downside. Sometimes you can see a, a guy where we get super awestruck with what they're doing at a particular age. I think the best example is Felix Ojeda-Aliassime. But there's a lot of stuff technically and tactically that they really need kind of work on. And we almost assume that it's going to get there because of, again, how well they do at the age in which they're able to do it. But then we see, sometimes we see some stagnation at 21 years old, at 22 years old, at 23 years old. Because they were physically already there at such a young age, it can it can make us prone to overprojecting what they are going to do. So I think it's better than than looking at a 19 year old and being like, oh, he's not there physically, and I don't know if he'll ever get there. So you don't have to worry about that with Feast. He's a compl- unbelievably explosive athlete already, but I, I do think we always need to be careful. And make sure it's not an example of assuming that all of the the things that Feast needs to work on, like decision-making and point construction, like we, we can't assume that those things are going to be great when he's 22. My counter, though, would be they're already good. Like, that's what makes Arthur Feast so impressive, is that he does beat players in a variety of ways. And if you don't believe me, go watch the Greek Spore match, where there were times he had to play defense, he had to counterpunch, he had to find ways to withstand the relentless barrage of inside-out forehands Greek sport likes to throw at you. And then he played on his front foot, and then he dictated with his first serve, and then he incorporated the backhand slice, which I think he drives really well. And again, there's a fluidity to him in the outer thirds. I see all of the skills. I agree. Still going to have to find a way to put them together. Plan A, plan Mm -hmm. B, plan C. What are all of those things? But he's a guy who can do all of those things. And then to your point, has the speed, has the weapons to someday develop a really good plan A. And so that's what makes it, to me, the most obvious stock buy. Again, two teenagers in the top 100. And for the first time in 15 years, Gil, they're both French. It's a moment. Stock up. French men's tennis. First time you can say that in 15 years. All right. Let's get a little funky now on this list. Let's have some fun. I brought him up. It's the obvious transition. Sebastian Baez, currently number 28 in the world. You could argue Baez, and by the way, just the final note, actually, just the Arthur Fee record, I realized I never said it, but uh, 34 and 18 overall in the year, 14 and 12 at the tour level. That's what I think was most impressive to me uh, is, again, he was winning across the board, slow but steady. Sebi Baez was not slow but steady. Sebi Baez, as always, you know, again, it goes up and down. And when he's on the clay courts, there are always ups. And you look for Sebi Baez this year, 31 and 21 overall on the season, 22 and 13 on clay, title in Cordoba, semis in Santiago. Uh, I believe it was the title in Kitzbühel as well, where he beats Echeverry, beats team. You know, again, we know the sort of clay court success he's capable of producing. Now, obviously, some of us will remember that Monfi match, the debacle that was that first round at Roland Garros. But I think it was another pretty steady top 35-ish clay court season for Sebastian Baez. Hard courts are where things get interesting. Baez, 8-6 and six overall in the year. 
Not great if you're only playing 14 hardcourt matches, but that's a discussion maybe for a different time. Better than last year. Yeah, and look, lost five of his first six on the season. Goes to Winston-Salem before the U.S. Open. Wins over top 50 guys in Vukic, Yera, Chorich, and Lachetchka on his way to his first tour-level hardcourt title. Maybe his first hardcourt title, period. Um then goes to the U.S. Open, beats Chorich again on his way to the third round, gets knocked out by Medvedev. It's growth. It's the first signs of life for Sebastian Baez on hard courts in his career at the tour level. And look, he's still 13-24 and 24 overall on the surface. Eight of those 13 wins came this season, Gil. We know how good he can be on hard courts. And again, Sebastian Baez turns 23 clay. years old uh, on clay courts. Thank you. We he turns 23 years old this December, so his whole you know he's a December birthday. His whole age 23 season is next year. That's pretty young. Signs of life on the hard courts. Status quo on the clay. Is this our first clear cut stock up? Sebastian Baez currently number 28. I'm buying him. I'm, I'm buying I'm, I'm as saying, well. Make I'm the argument. Stock up. Yeah. When you see a young player going like up and down and up and down as much as Bias has, you have to figure that's just inexperience. There's stuff going on mentally and and physically that's kind of preventing him from just always bringing his best tennis. But as as you're you get more comfortable on the tour, your your professionalism, your routines start to get set in place. You have to imagine we're just going to start to see the best version of Sebastian Bias on a more regular basis. The best version of Sebastian Baez at his age has a ridiculous amount of runs to finals and titles. It's been really good, and he's got a lot of power. So the height thing, that's where you kind of look the other way on the height thing. Yeah, the serve's not good, but off the ground, he is not lacking firepower whatsoever, and he's a great mover. So you compare him to a guy like Schwartzman. Mm-hmm. Similar quickness around the court. And they're always going to be compared. Don't get mad at Gil. Yeah. You just have to. Yeah, but and I'm comparing them not because they're the same. In this case, I'm comparing them actually because they're different. Yeah. Baez has that massive forehand off the ground mm. that reminds me a lot more of Ferrer than it does Schwartzman. Uh, and I think that that would be your hope for Baez, who just doesn't really seem... Bias doesn't really seem to have the commitment to defense, the commitment to grinding and consistency and shot tolerance that Ferrer has. But if he can get a percentage of that, get just kind of tone that aspect of his game a little bit, I think we're going to see a player whose best surface is always clay, but there's no way there should be that big a gap between clay court result and hard court results. At that point, it's just a confidence thing because the the surfaces are too similar nowadays for that to make any sense. Mm-hmm. And I think Bias should be a a top 20 guy for a five-year period of time. Yeah, I agree with you. No points to defend Australia, Miami, one win at Indian Wells to defend through that first third of the season. That is just straight-up opportunity for growth. He also didn't have that good of a clay court season. Again, wins, no matches in Monte Carlo, one in Madrid, one in Rome, none at Roland Garros. He's going to do better just on the clay court events next season alone. Here's my fun stats for Baez. And then again, this can be a quicker one. Hard court records and hold percentages over the last three years. 2021, four and three overall. Hold your breath here, fans. And if you're driving, maybe pull over. 
held serve 55.3% of the time. That was not a mistake, Gil. 55.3. I don't like to think you and I could do that, but that's close. Like, again, we're not having that debate. I know it was going around, but like, that's no bueno. Last year, 6 and 18 on hard courts held serve 69.1% of the time. Again, very, very bad. Worth noting, amongst top 50 players, the average hold percentage on hard courts here this season, according to the Tennis Abstract leaderboard, 83.3%. This year for Sebastian Baez on hard courts, he's holding serve 75% of the time. Is that good? No. Is that serviceable? considering he's breaking serve 26.6% of the time, which is a top 10 number on the ATP tour. Yeah, it's serviceable. And I think the serve is the controllable. It's the thing you're most likely to improve on throughout the course of your career. I have seen tangible growth, not just in the pace of his serve, but he's hitting his spots more efficiently to set up the first forehand, which is what he always wants to do. And to your point, that play is just going to have success. 28 is too low. I'm stock up on Sebi Baez. Again, a 23-year-old we don't talk enough about. Yeah, you also should look to like what Demonor is doing. Oh, gonna, so you want to go there next? Yeah, let's let's go there next because the entire top 10 pretty much has above average serves right now, mm-hmm. except Alcaraz. And when I when I ranked the serves in the top 10, Alcaraz was 10th. Amazingly. Mm-hmm. It's amazing for, you know, one of the two elite guys at the top to to be the worst at anything. But Alcaraz had my number 10 serve just ahead of Runa, who is ninth. Uh, if you're looking at Baez, what's his ceiling? What can he do? How, how good can you be with that kind of serve? I would compare it to Demonor, who's knocking on the door now of the top 10. So let's let's talk about Alex. Alex Demonor, 38-20 overall on the year. Career-high win percentage, 66.1. Career-high hold percentage, 80.5%, which again, still not a top 25 number, but first time he's over the 80 club in a full tour-level season. The break percentage is what's been elite. He's number four on the tour in break percentage, 30.4 for the course of the year. That you're over 30%. It's an elite number. Again, I mentioned 38 and 20, the signature results uh, for Demon Hour this season. Four different finals, won the title in Acapulco, finals in Queens Club, Los Cabos, and of course, Canada. He makes nine different quarterfinals this year. You look for him at the majors, round of 16 losses to Djokovic, Medvedev respectfully uh, at the U.S., or respectively, excuse me, U.S. Open and Australia. He's 11th in the points race. As you know, again, 12th right now uh, in the rankings and to turn to a metric you and I both love, he's 10th in ELO rating. It has been a spectacular season for Alex Diemenauer. Can it get any better, Gil, or is this the peak? Are you selling? I would have to sell, yeah. Yeah. It, there's too many limitations there, I, and I love— But he's gotten stronger. Like, here's the thing. It's not to cut you off, but to cut you yeah. off. Uh, we have this discussion every time. He is the oldest 24-year-old we have on the ATP Tour because if I told you he was 27, you'd believe that. He has been around in our lives now for about half a decade. Still 24 years old. Again, he has been one of the 10 best players in the world on hard courts this season. The Canada final, the signature result. That said, like, is there room for growth in those round of 16s at the two hard court majors next season? The fact that that Canada Masters was the only hard court Masters he made the round of 16 or further at this season. 
Like, I don't think he's going away as a top 10 guy. The yeah, speed what, has what is he going to improve? What, what is he going to improve? Well, That's the thing. Because okay. go on. My, my, my thing, I guess, is there are technical limitations with like literally how he produces his strokes. Yes, literal, on, literal technical limitations. Yeah, but it's not just his height. His serve technique, no, you can poke a lot of holes East, in it. He's also the last Eastern forehand grip past the 1990s. Like his backhand looks at Cam Norrie's backhand and they say, oh, nice. Like cool to hang out with you here in the little take back zone. Yeah. But he's so f***ing fast. And like Alex Diemenauer is the best volleyer we don't talk about because his volleys yep. are elite and his speed moving forward, his ability to hit the overhead, his ability to hit the short angle volley. Again, he will never have the biggest weapons, but he has found a million different ways to make opponents uncomfortable, take away what they want to do most and continues to improve every season in that controllable can he coax another 2% out of that hold percentage? That's the question. I don't know. Look, he's so tough. He's yeah. so smart. He fights so hard. He's never going to lose matches that he should have won. His head is never going to get in the way. Uh, you, you're right to point out his net rushing because that's where he's made up for a lot of the lack of power off the ground is he's just finishing up at net now, which is great. And he's so athletic, he closes the net quickly as well. Um, he is also, I think, more willing to play within himself from the baseline. I, I don't think he's missing as much in in scenarios where he kind of forgets who he is and tries to inject pace and create offense from behind the baseline. Mm -hmm. He's become this really consistent player, knows exactly who he is and how to use his weapons and how not to use his weapons. Yeah. I, I'm just always going to be someone when it comes to like, look at Schwartzman's 2020, right? He did that once. Yeah, but 2020 doesn't count. Right, but if we had this conversation about Diego at the time, I would say the same thing. It's like Diego is doing incredibly well. I so admire it, but he's the the things that he doesn't do well, they're never getting better. I just and I, and Demonor is in that camp to me. The things his weaknesses are not going to improve. Namely, let's be specific. He's never going to be a player who delivers ground stroke speed or serve speed anywhere in the range of the players above him in the rankings. Demon Hour, 8-7 against top 20 opponents this season. That's tied for fifth most on tour. And here's people he has more top 20 wins than. Taylor Fritz, Yannick Sinner, yep. Holger Runa. Yep. Uh, who's further up the rankings than him that he has? Francis Tiafo, Casper uh, Root. More top 20 wins than all of them. That's been the big difference. Like, uh, didn't he well, lose? The look at his record against top five. He's a surface specialist. He is one of these, you know, he's top five and wins on hard courts this season. Yep. He is one of the 10 best players in the world on hard courts. And there's enough hard court runway in the calendar that he could put together a top 10 season. He also just, again, he, I like, I get why he is bad on clay courts because of his forehand, how flat it stays, the backhand, how flat it stays, his ability to hit through a clay court is miserably difficult. You look for him, record on clay courts this year, four and five overall. He's got to get six wins to do better than he did next season and replicate the hard court success as he, again, turns 25, enters the prime of his career. I'm going to take the ever so slight stock buy. I think next year's the year we see that Demon Hour Tour Finals run, the ever so slight stock buy, because again, 
I'm never I, – I know exactly I'm getting the effort, what I'm getting from Demon, match in, match out. Slight stock buy. Fair enough. I could see him as a guy who makes one year-end championship in his career. Yeah. And, and yeah. Maybe, maybe that's next year. I don't discount that possibility at all. But, again, if if I'm making bets here, 50-50, is his ranking this time next year better or worse than where it's at right now, 12 in the world? I do go worse. I had three make-or-break 2023 players at the start of the year. Hachinov, who was on pace to make, but obviously got injured. Shapovalov, break but he's been injured so again almost a dq demon hour had a make like i'm I'm, i said at the start of the year i needed to see something if so i will continue to retain my demon hour stock now retain kind of means hold but i'm gonna buy i still think there's a little bit more there that said we're gonna rapid fire through the final five because i think these players are all interesting for different reasons we don't have to go through the stats as deeply i just want your take more broadly on them Francisco Sarundolo, number 21, almost the polar opposite of Demon in that the weapons are so evident. You know what the peak for Sarundolo looks like. The problem is there are some weeks where it's not there and the first round losses pile up. You stock up, stock down, stock hold on the 25-year-old. Stock up. I, I think one of the elite forehands in the game should definitely get higher at some point than 21 in the world. It's kind of that simple for me. You look at the best forehands in the world— and they all do pretty darn well throughout their careers. Sorrentolo's still young enough, and I, I think you look at his serve, the height is there. The technique doesn't look that bad. Yeah. Now we're talking about a player who I think can start to serve better, and he needs to serve better because it's, uh, it's one of the, the most underperforming serves, I think, in the top 30. Um, so yeah, stock up. I think the best days are ahead for Sarandola. Mm-hmm. 19 and 12 on the clay courts. Round of 16, Roland Garros. Five set loss to Runa. Won a t- uh, excuse me, finals in Lyon. Quarterfinals, Rome. He is that good on the clay, and I still think there's more meat on the bone. Nine and eight on hard courts. His only good run really coming in Miami. He's too good on his front foot to have that be the only quarterfinal he makes on hard courts in a season. So I agree. I'm a slight stock up on him just because the weapons are so evident. How he goes about winning matches is very clear. It's about minimizing the dips, and you always hope players will continue to do that moving forward. I like his backhand, just structurally, foundationally. I think he hits through it well. It's that he does lose the concentration. He gets a little slap happy. The errors start to pile up. Go look at the Svita match and the ups and downs, and you'll see that there. That said, actually— 21 in the rankings feels right. I don't think next year we see him make a top 15 push. I think we see him hold status quo, which, again, will be a good season for Sarundolo to sustain that top 25. So I'm going to go hold with Sarundolo. Number 30, Lachetschka. Started the year with a bang in Australia. Obviously still has the, the weapons, the serve, the forehand. He's 30 in the world. Had a really good Davis Cup weekend, undefeated against Davidovich Fokina, Yera, and Sunwoo Kwan. Round of 16, Wimbledon as well. Finals in Winston-Salem. Stock up, stock down, stock hold on the 21-year-old. Stock up, love the ground game, love the power. It's pretty simple. Uh, the, the serve is, is big as well. He's a great athlete. He's not that quick, but he's a very strong, sturdy, balanced mover. He's not fluid. That's the like he's a little stiff in those corners, right? He's very stiff. Yeah, he's, I like his first step. It's just like getting out of that first step. Yeah, I mean everything about his game is is pretty stiff, robotic. Yeah, a little bit robotic. It's it's very it's very Burdich like. Yeah. Now he do his feet move a little bit quicker than Burdich's feet? Yes, 
But Birch was six six. Yeah. Right. Before six six guys were moving well on a regular basis. Well, Chilich was Chilich walked, so we could all run. Um and, and even Chilich is slow next to the six foot six guys yeah. that we're looking at now. Like Herkoch, Medvedev, and Zverev. Marin Chilich, the quietest three slam finals of anyone out there. He's on that list alongside of Casper Root, uh, surprisingly enough. Very first podcast was after his Wimbledon final loss to Federer, which was a memorable match because there were the tears. Um, and yeah, that's why, again, it's just one of those things I will never forget. Yeah, I like Lachetchka. The serve, the forehand, their cannons, and his backhand has gotten a lot better. I just I don't know what the weakness is other than if you have elite pace, you can get him stretched, but elite pace can get anyone stretched. And so I'm kind of in on Lachetchka. That top speed. And I like again, I, I like how I like his game plan. I know what plan A is. Yeah, I mean you, you work on getting more consistent with the shot selection. You work on the nerve management, I think, can get better. He's left some matches on the table where I think certainly he's not at a point where he's able to execute when he feels a lot of pressure. And that can completely, that can kill your season. You can be a player who is just not reaching their potential yet just because of that alone. And I think there's a little bit of that happening with Lehechka. Uh, with with experience, that tends to get better. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Cam Nori, number 17 right now. You know, again, hasn't had that bad of a season, but it's been pretty tough since about Roland Garros. Loses third round there to Musetti. Quarterfinals, Queens Club. Second round loss, Wimbledon. First round loss, Los Cabos, Canada, Cincy. The head-scratching loss to Arnaldi. Then the tough weekend with losses to Umber and Wawrinka. Still, you look for him overall in the season, 34-19. Live rankings have him at 17. Points race have him at 15. Stock up, stock down, stock hold with the 28-year-old. Stock hold, I think this uh, this feels like a good range from him. Like I would, my comp would be Pablo Carreño Busta sure. for Nori. So when he was in the top ten, it it felt like he was a little bit too high. Now he he has such a funky and unique style and some really interesting attributes that I think part of me was like, oh no, maybe. Maybe he is going to spend a couple years at the back end of the top 10. Maybe, maybe he will do that. But at the same time, I think uh, a larger percentage of me, a, a larger percentage of me was thinking, something feels off about this. It, it doesn't feel sustainable. It's not the the serve plus one kind of basics of of all of this. they they don't seem to be there, obviously physically. He excels, but it just seems like he's more of a teens player than he is a top 10 player. That's where he's at right now. Now, look, at, at a certain point, I think he's probably going to drop out of the top 20, and that'll probably be early next year because all he did was win the first two months of this season. I think come next year, he's going to drop out of the top 20 because uh, those points are going to fall off. But then I think he'll get back into the top 20. That's why I hold at 17. Yeah, this is course correction. It just feels about right. Still has six quarterfinals this year. Rio, Buenos Aires, Indian Wells was really good those first couple of months. Yeah, it's a lot of points to defend early, but then again, a long runway down the home stretch of the season, and he's just too solid. Like, again, we may know exactly what Cam Nori is, but we know exactly what Cam Nori is, and to both mm-hmm. his benefit and perhaps his detriment. I agree. Stockhold there. Last two for you. I think they're both interesting. 
Chris Eubanks, currently 32 in the world, reached his career high, obviously 29 earlier this season. Wimbledon quarterfinal, Mallorca title. Honestly, the Atlanta quarterfinal, a big deal. That he wins his first-round match at the U.S. Open so comfortably, not something he's done a ton of throughout the course of his career. Look, it's an open first half of the season. You look for Chris, who still has some serious challenger points to defend, by the way, down the home stretch, but also has indoor in European hardcourt events coming up. You feel like that could be beneficial for him. Miami quarterfinal earlier this season as well. Stock up, stock down, stock hold. This is by far the toughest one Ooh. for me. Okay. Why? Go on. I see a world in which Eubanks gets to the top 10 because he's elite offensively. Serve, forehand, volleys didn't set the uh, winner's record at Wimbledon for nothing. He will attack you, and he will attack you as well as anybody in the world can attack you. Now he's never going to defend well. And I think players who kind of have that one-way attribute, whether it be defensively or offensively, normally they cap out at about eight in the world in in, in that range, right? You're never going to see a player like, be top five and, oh, they don't defend well, or, oh, they don't attack well. That just doesn't happen anymore. Uh, But that's kind of the best case for Eubanks. That said, there's a sample size thing here that I need to be real with myself and I need to be consistent. Whenever a player has three weeks, uh, you look at Miami, Wimbledon, Mallorca, most of the rankings points are coming from three weeks. So I got to see more. Like that's not enough for me to feel good about a guy who's 32 in the world to continue to go up. So I'm going to I'm gonna hold not because 32 feels right to me. I'm going to hold because I could see it going both ways. I could see it going up. I could see it going down. It's really hard to tell. I want to I wanna say up. But I, I'm also going to be consistent here. If if there's a 27-year-old, and the age thing is key, because if he was 21 and he did this, then it's here's a young guy who's starting to figure things out. But if there's a 27-year-old who has a couple of massive weeks and the larger sample size isn't there, you have to you just have to have a little bit of skepticism there. Being fair. It's a good argument to have. You know, again, first of all, for you to come in sizzling with a Chris Eubanks top 10 potential take in minute number 54 of the show, that's why you're a returning champion here at Cracked Rackets. Always, it's why we always have a seat for you. I mean, I need to see more on clay before I could even sniff top like top 20, top 15 in the Chris Eubanks future. And again, this is a guy who made quarterfinals in Miami, quarterfinals in Wimbledon, and wins a 250 title. Do I see him replicating that next season? I don't know if I do. And there are still ways, by the way, for him to have a successful 2024 without replicating that. I think if he holds steady in top 50, you know, through a full year, his first really full year of tour level events, that would be a massive win for the 27-year-old. I think I'm stocked down because I think he finishes next year like 46 in the world instead of 32. And the reason why I think it's so interesting is I still think I would come out of that season feeling positive about Chris because that means he won enough matches in that clay court portion of the year and he did enough to match those three signature results that he was good enough to say in the top 50. Because again, those th- Wimbledon quarterfinal, 250 title, and a Masters quarterfinal, how the points game is system, you're a top 50 player. 
What is he doing outside of that? That's what I want to see, and that's why I'm slight stock down in terms of ranking, but hold big picture to what you mentioned. Yeah, and the the psychology there is fascinating because there was a point, and it wasn't long ago, where Chris was like, I just want to be a tour player. I'm tired of being a challenger player. I want to play the big events. So it it wasn't a situation where he's he's looking at it from the standpoint of I want to be top 20 or I expect to be top 20. The goal was just, again, not long ago at all. The goal was let me get my rankings to a point of my ranking to a point where I don't have to play challengers anymore. And now he's so far surpassed that it, it is another interesting conversation is what's a successful season? What's a not successful season in, in 2023? I, I guess that's up to Chris, right? What, what yeah, he sure. wants from himself. Uh, let me also just follow up on one thing you said, you want to see more on clay. I don't necessarily want to see more on clay because I don't think we're going to get that much on clay, okay. but I want to see more from the baseline version of Chris. Can you hang from the back of the court from a consistency and movement standpoint, right? Can you win rallies? That's the question. It's like when when you're on the surfaces where you're not serving the lights out, you're not finding the easy winners, it's kind of hard to come forward. Are you able to work out of those situations? You don't need to be you know, beating Roberto Bautista Agut from the back of the court necessarily, but are you going to hang in those situations? Because I think Eubanks, at his worst, has been a player who just hasn't been able to find the consistency off the ground in order to win a high enough percentage of baseline rallies. It's very, it's a very fair argument to make. I have, I have no counters to you there. I just, again, I want to see the schedule he comes up with. Like, I just need to see it to believe it. I guess that would be my final thought on all things Eubanks. Are you buying, holding, or selling? What's your final take? I, I'm holding because I, I really do think the weapons are. Top 15 weapons, but the sample size is a red flag. It, it just doesn't always work out this way when, especially at his age, when you just have a couple weeks. Even look at Karatsev, who sure. did it for longer than Eubanks. Karatsev did it for three months there, maybe four months there. And he wasn't who he looked like when, when he did it over the course of a short sample size. By the way, at the same age, 27. I love to hear it. Well, you know what? I'm going to do some on-the-fly editing. I like ending on that uh, argument or discussion. I think that's a fun one because I do think Eubanks is one of those most fascinating players in that. I still don't know what he looks like against ATP competition consistently. I still think we have a lot to learn about him even though he is 27 years old. All that said, we are under the hour mark here, Gil, if you efficiently— Plug, what you got going on? Because I know Monday match analysis is always rocking and rolling. Three, a tennis show, Djokovic out of the China event. Talk to me through what you guys up to. Yeah, well, uh, skipping this Monday, actually. So nothing this Monday. I know. So this is your Monday match analysis? This is is it. Yeah, you got got me on my my break. You should be honored, actually. (laughs) Uh, I did a a mailbag on Wednesday that is an hour and a half long that has yeah. many evergreen topics from Halop to to the US Open uh kind of takeaways and and all of that that I recommend you check out if you have not and I'll have another mailbag coming up uh later in the week. Well, as always Gil Gross, you know you are my dearest friend. I sincerely recommend to all of our listeners go check out your content. It's the only things I listen to because as always, I have no problem stealing your takes. Thank you for coming on our show to share them today. Much love, Grusky. Always a pleasure. 
Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with our dear friend Gil Gross. A thank you to him as always for taking the time to join us. You know you can follow him on his Gil Gross YouTube channel, Monday Match Analysis 3A Tennis Show. And yes, of course, we will continue to have him here on this podcast moving forward again. In case you missed it in the intro or you like to skip through that part, I will be joined by our dear friend David Kane tomorrow on this show for the WTA equivalent conversation. So be sure to check that out. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show. Share it with your friends. Of course, do the same with all of our Crack Rackets podcasts. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f*** of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. With all that said, again, we will be back tomorrow for Stock Up, Stock Down, Stock Hold, WTA edition for now for our fantastic guest, Gil Gross, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. And you know what we say, hey, great shot, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.